have come to think of organisms as being energetic constructions. I mean, we're always breathing. We always have to carry out energetic processes. These are going on all the time. And the energy is first. I mean, people usually say, oh, yes, well, you know, organisms need energy in order to grow, reproduce, move, etc. But I think it's the other way around. I think we do those things because the energy is flowing. <laughs> take modern earth for granted our breathable atmosphere the delicately balanced ecosystems we depend on but this world is nothing like the planet on which life first found its foothold in fact it may be more appropriate to think of life in terms of verbs than nouns of processes instead of finished products this is the evolutionary turn that science started taking in the 19th century but only in the last few decades has biology begun to see this planet's soil, air, and oceans as the work in progress of our biosphere. The story of our planet can't be adequately told without some understanding of how life itself depends on opportunities that life creates based on the energy and mineral resources made as byproducts of our metabolisms. A new revelatory narrative of the last 3.8 billion years refigures living systems in terms of thermodynamic flows and the ever-growing range of possibilities created by our ever more complex ecologies. And in the telling, this new history sheds light on some of the biggest puzzles of the fossil record. Why complex animals took so long to appear, why humans are the way we are, and maybe even why the sky is blue. Welcome to Complexity, the official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute, the world's foremost complex systems science research organization. I'm your host, Michael Garfield. Each week we'll bring you with us for far-ranging conversations with our worldwide network of researchers, rigorous scientists and mathematicians, philosophers and artists developing new frameworks, tools, and theories to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. This is a show about your world and the people who have dedicated their lives to exploring and explaining its emergent order, their stories, research, and insights. Join us for an adventure into complexity. This week's guest is evolutionary biologist and science journalist Olivia Judson, an honorary research fellow at the Imperial College of London, who received her PhD from the University of Oxford, and whose writing has appeared in The Economist, The New York Times, The Guardian, and National Geographic. She is also the author of the internationally best-selling popular science book, Dr. Tatiana's Sex Advice to All Creation. In this episode, we discuss her work on major energy transitions in evolution, the subject of her next book, and what we can learn by studying the intimate dance of biology and geology over the last four billion years. Before we start, we'd like to inform you of upcoming opportunities with SFI. Applications are now open for the 2020 Complex Systems Summer School, the Graduate Workshop in Computational Social Science, the 2020 Journalism Fellowship, and a postdoctoral position in Scaling Theory. Learn more at santafe.edu. We're also running our year-end fund drive for our free online courseware at complexityexplorer.org with a goal of 1,000 contributions, and we're getting closer by the day. For transcripts of this episode, along with show notes, research links, and more, please visit complexity.simplecast.com. 
And if you enjoy this podcast, please help us reach a wider audience by leaving a five-star review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. So, Olivia Judson, it is a pleasure to explore complexity with you today. Thank you. You gave a superb talk last night on the dance of rock and life, a public presentation of this piece that you published in Nature in 2017, The Energy Expansions of Evolution. So this is the paper I want to reference for this talk because this is a really fascinating synthesis. And maybe the correct place to start is just to have you lay out the most basic outline of it, and then we can dive into more detail. So I came to this project sort of indirectly. It wasn't my plan to look at the coevolution of life and Earth, the way that life has shaped the planet and the planet has shaped life over its 4.5 billion year history. But I came to it sort of by accident, and I've found it absolutely fascinating ever since. And as I started to understand the extent to which living organisms have shaped the non-living world, I started to ask myself whether I was just making an enormous list of impacts from everything from the color of the sky to to the number of minerals here today. And I realized that actually I, I did see a pattern in the history of life and earth. And that, that pattern, could I, you could say it like this, the, the history of life and earth can be divided into five epochs, each of which corresponds to organisms evolving to use a new form of energy. And the thing that is very interesting to me about this is that although the first two forms of energy were present when the planet formed, the remaining three are all consequences of this dance of rock and life. They're events in the evolution of life that feed back into the evolution of the planet, and which then goes on to shape the future evolution of life. And the energy epochs are geochemical energy, which you could sort of think of as rock energy, uh, sunlight, oxygen, flesh, and fire. Excellent. So, yeah, this is... A fresh way of looking at this, but it, I mean, it seems in retrospect, you know, the Atlantic wrote a, a piece on this when you first published this, where they interviewed a bunch of other researchers who were like, ah, oh, I wish that I had said it first. It's like one of those papers that seems so obvious in retrospect. One of the things that your paper does really well, and that you did really well in your talk last night was to explain how the availability of energy resources determines the pace and the timing of major evolutionary transitions, that there is, for example, a prehistory to flesh eating and a, you know, a prehistory to the aerobic metabolism. And I'd love to hear you talk about that and like how this changes the way that we think of the stepwise order in which new evolutionary innovations lead to new niches and, and so on. So one of the things that that I learned when I started this project, I didn't really know anything much about earth history. I came to understand as I read more and more about it, I realized more and more how ignorant I had been. And it made me see that the picture of evolution that I had learned as a, as a student, which was very much based just on thinking about genes and DNA and, and information was not sufficient to explain some very long periods of, delay in Earth history, delay with respect to explaining why, for example, did it take 4 billion years for the first animals to appear? Why did it take more than 300 million years for 
oxygen to accumulate in the atmosphere after the bacteria that produce it here appeared. And, and I started to understand that actually the, the broader trends in evolution, when you're looking over Earth history, that they can only really be understood in context with the planet itself. And just thinking about information alone isn't really enough to explain some of these very long periods of, of delay. But in fact, that there is a resource problem. And I've focused on energy, but of course, there are multiple lenses through which one could look at this subject. And you could also focus on limited nutrients, like is iron going to be available? Is zinc going to be available? Is And, and there are people who have studied the, the sort of the trajectory of evolution in the context of the chemical availability that, that changes over planetary history in response to the activities of organisms. So to give a particular example, all eukaryotes, which is every organism you've ever seen with your naked eye, uh, <laughs> all eukaryotes use zinc in their proteins, but zinc does not actually become available to organisms to use, not widely available anyway, until after you have oxygen in the atmosphere. But then, so eukaryotes evolve and, and there's already oxygen there when they do, but then there's a long period of, of delay before eukaryotes become abundant. And that, I think, remains mysterious, actually. I don't think we understand why that is the case. There are a couple of ideas. Uh, one geological, one ecological, maybe it's both things together. But so you see around 800 million years ago, which is a billion years after eukaryotes first, first form, you see that eukaryotes are starting to diversify in the fossil record. And But you can sort of say, well, is there something we didn't understand about the fossil record? Is it just that perhaps there was more diversification and, and it didn't fossilize? But there's an independent question that you can ask, which is because eukaryotes use zinc, you can also say, does anything change in the, in the zinc cycle? And this is very recent work that has come out, that is not mine, but very, very recent work that has come out looking at how the drawdown of zinc occurs over time. And actually, you discover that, that the zinc cycle changes at exactly the time you would expect based on the fossil record of eukaryote diversification. And so you have two parallel independent confirmations that actually, yes, this was, there was a one billion year delay, which I find fascinating. Something like this you mentioned in the paper uh, around the great oxidation event that photosynthesis floods the atmosphere with oxygen, but it takes forever. You, know, you mentioned that a lot of this has to do with natural geochemical cycling, the, the reuptake and absorption of oxygen by the rocks themselves, and that we had to reach a sort of critical mass of photosynthetic cyanobacteria in order to actually create this shift in the composition of the atmosphere that enabled the proliferation of the aerobic metabolism that already existed, right? So there's something kind of easily generalizable, universal about this, about the nature of innovation and the notion of an idea whose time has come. If we can try and connect innovation in human activity to evolutionary innovation. So I'm, I mean, I'm curious what you see as the abstract or universal there. Well, I think that there are two things. I mean, I, I think that you can certainly say that there are limitations, there are constraints, and those constraints cannot be overcome until, for example, you either have a new energy source or a new way of using that energy source. So one of the great innovations in the history of life is the evolution of the eukaryotic cell, which does seem to have been a unique event in four billion years of evolution. And that, I think, raises some interesting and important questions. It's hard to know exactly how to phrase this, but how did it come to be that this was able to happen when 
it seems like, I mean, from our point of view, as eukaryotes, we, we sort of seemed like an, an inevitable event. But, but when we look at Earth history, I think we can say that actually it was an extremely unusual thing to happen. And I don't think there's necessarily any inevitability around it, but I don't know. I'm not sure that I'm managing to answer this question at all. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned in the origin of eukaryotic cells. In extant eukaryotes, organelles of mitochondrial origin take several different but related forms. Notably, only one, the standard mitochondrion found, for example, in humans, requires oxygen. Three others are involved in forms of anaerobic metabolism. These observations fit with the hypothesis advanced by Martin and colleagues that the ancestral eukaryote resulted from a prior symbiotic association between a hydrogen-dependent archaeon and a metabolically flexible alpha-proteobacterium that in the absence of oxygen lived anaerobically producing hydrogen and in the presence of oxygen lived aerobically. If this hypothesis is correct, the ancestral eukaryote could have been a facultative anaerobe able to live in both oxic and anoxic environments. So this question of the innovation before it stabilizes is an interesting question. How much as we saw with like the Cambrian quote-unquote explosion, innovation it seems to go through a sort of radiative exploratory phase where the selection pressure is on flexibility and then it settles into something a little bit more formal and concrete well i think i mean i think i think about evolution a bit differently i think one of the people who so stuart kaufman who obviously has been a long time associated with the santa fe institute coined the term the adjacent possible and i think that one of the things that we have come to understand is that natural selection and evolution they're not magic wands Right? And evolution by natural selection only works if each mutational step itself is advantageous. So you have a mutation, and, in, and not just advent, there's no such thing as advantageous in a general sense. It's advantageous in the circumstances you're living in. So it's very environment dependent what is advantageous and what isn't. But just because something would be useful doesn't mean it will necessarily evolve, or it doesn't mean it will necessarily evolve soon. So one of the clearest demonstrations of this, I think, has come about from the Lensky very long-term evolution experiment on E. coli bacteria, which has been going on, I think, since 1988 or 1990. And every day, somebody changes the E. coli from one bat to another, and they grow, and it's gone through 70 or 80,000 generations now, I think. So it's a very long-term evolution experiment. And the bacteria are growing in very, very circumscribed, particular lab environment, but it's been constant for the whole time. But the interesting thing is that in their growth medium, there is um, something called citrate, which E. coli cannot normally grow on. But it's very abundant, and whereas glucose is limited. So you would expect that if it was advantageous to be able to eat this stuff, the citrate, that it would evolve. But in fact, in the 12 populations, uh, at least the last time I checked, in the 12 populations, um, it had only evolved once, and that only happened after about 35,000 generations. So it's a, it's a nice demonstration of how, in order to find an evolutionary solution, sometimes there's a lot of meandering and there's no particular direction to the solution. The E. coli probably don't even know there's a problem, so to speak, <laughs> <laughs> that they're trying to solve. And the reason that they're able to solve it is because they reproduce very quickly uh, and, and, and so they can go through, and also in very large numbers. So if you're a bacterium reproducing very quickly in large numbers, you, you get to explore the mutation space 
pretty reliably, but it turns out that there's a path dependence to get to being able to use this citrate. And so in order to get the mutation to use the citrate, you have to have at least one or two other mutations first uh, that have to join up. And so it, that's why it was only in one of these 12 populations. And the thing that's nice about the Lensky experiment is that they, uh, every 500 generations, they freeze some of the organisms so that in principle they can restart from any point in the past and do it again. And they did this, and that, that's how they found that there was actually a, a facilitating mutation on the road to citrate use. And I think the point of this is that sometimes just because you want to get there from here doesn't mean it's easy or straightforward or direct. And, and I think that that's one of the possible explanations for why the eukaryotic cell has only evolved once, is that, first of all, I think it's actually very difficult because... Although we think of internal parasites or, or symbionts as being very common in biology, they're actually only very common in eukaryotes. It's a, it's a feature of eukaryotes that they can have other, back, other organisms living inside their cells, like bacteria, for example. Uh, and you see this in insects a lot, and you see it in you know, the human gut microbiome and so on. But you see that there's, there's a lot of intimate associations with other organisms inside the body. And in bacteria and archaea, uh, which are both prokaryotes, you don't actually see this. Now, it's possible that we haven't sampled it enough because so many of these organisms are obscure to us and we've never managed to even see them in a microscope, let alone to grow them in the laboratory. But I think that from what we can see, internal symbiotic associations are very, very rare. So I think of it as a double problem, the evolution of the eukaryotic cell. It's, it's getting in and then getting along. Um, and I think both are hard problems but I think that it's also not necessarily clear that at least in a microbial world that there's any particular advantage to being a eukaryote. And so it's not clear that there was any drive towards that either. I know that you went to Oxford with David Krakauer, right? And as we were just talking about before this recording, my entrance to complexity was with the work that he co-authored with Martin Nowak at Princeton on the evolution of syntax. And the immediate application that I saw was to taking that math and applying it to the origin of complex cells or to multicellular life, that there do seem to be, and again, this is maybe a tangent because this is more, again, about sort of informational crisis in message transmission, but this notion that there reaches a point where each individual word and the memory required to hold all words that are relevant for communication in the population demands more memory than is effective for coherent communication. And so syntax emerges as a way of keeping the collective computation intact at the, at the community level. And so something like this seems to be at play here. And then the, the question is, can you look at the origin of eukaryotic cells as being driven by energy limitations? Like the fact that teamwork emerges as a strategy within a resource limitation context? Well, I think the question is very complex. It's clear that bacteria and archaea often live together in very intimate associations. It's just that they stay outside each other. So you'll have, you'll have a cell with many other cells attached to it. And often those other cells are doing a very important job. So, so if you're a, a small cell giving off, say, hydrogen gas, 
you can drown in your own waste products, even if the hydrogen gas is only a sort of small envelope around you that's you know less than a millimeter thick. Uh, and, but if there are other organisms there that are pulling the hydrogen gas away, then you can continue to produce. So you have very intimate associations going on in microbial communities already that are dealing, in fact, very effectively with some of these resource limitation questions. And I think that the eukaryotic cell does something else. It is an observable fact that in 4 billion years of evolution, bacteria and archaea have both remained extremely small. In terms of volume, archaea span six orders of magnitude and bacteria span nine, but they're still very, very tiny. Only the very biggest bacteria, which are, the, by the way, outliers, only the very biggest bacteria are visible to the naked eye, the naked human eye. And I think what the eukaryotic cell seems to have done is relieved some kind of architectural constraint. And exactly the nature of that constraint is not very clear and disputed. But if you look at the structure of both bacterial and archaeal cells, the internal structure is generally much simpler than in eukaryotes. And in particular, they use their external membrane for generating energy. And they have the, the DNA is not separated from the rest of the cells. So there's no separation between information and energy in bacterial and archaeal cells in the sense that everything is sloshing around in the same compartment. And in particular, they have this external membrane that is, that is generating energy and that cannot be disrupted without critical consequences for the cell. So even a virus, and obviously bacteria have viruses and so do archaea, but even a virus, so a virus doesn't go inside a cell. It injects its DNA or its RNA, but let's say DNA. It injects its DNA into the cell, but it does it very elaborately and with a kind of hypodermic needle that doesn't really disrupt the energetic activities of the membrane. So it has come to seem to me that what the eukaryotic cell does is it relieves some kind of architectural constraint because the mitochondria, which were bacteria once, mitochondria are the, what's doing the energy generation. So the in energy generation moves from the outside of the cell to the inside of the cell. And once you've done that, it's, it frees up the external membrane to do other things. So it's only when you have this symbiosis firmly established and these two organisms have fused. And I have to say that it's a very complete fusion. I mean, they, they really have become one. And to just sort of say, oh, well, the mitochondria used to be bacteria is very insufficient to explain what happened or describe what happened. I mean, when you look at how chimeric and mosaic eukaryotic cells are with all kinds of bits from bacteria here, like the membranes are all bacterial. A lot of the DNA processing is archaeal, but, but in fact, even within that, there's some bacterial contribution and a lot of bacterial metabolic genes. And, and so it really, it's a very composite organism that then goes on to evolve its own stuff, obviously. It's a very composite organism. And it, and it seems that this switch from having energy on the outside of the cell to inside of the cell is what actually relaxes some sort of constraint. But the nature of that constraint, I think, is still being explored. So this issue that you, you brought up a couple of times here of larger organisms and more abundant energy leading to a diversity of metabolic strategies means ratcheting niche construction, right? So say from the point of view of the biosphere, the emergence and diversification of eukaryotes provided a new set of niches for prokaryotes to occupy, which in turn allowed eukaryotes to occupy a far wider variety of niches. So this notion that the microbiome 
And at the bacterial level, the proliferation of new food sources is an example of this driver. I'm really curious to hear you go into more detail about niche construction and ratcheting biodiversity and how that's driven by these energy expansions. So the way that I've come to think about it is as uh, organisms evolve to use a new energy source and then go on to produce new energy sources, you get um, two things happen at the same time. You get an expansion of the complexity of ecological uh, interactions, and you get an expansion of the geological impacts on the planet. And that comes around in two different ways, the geological impacts, because on the one hand, you have organisms living in a wider variety of places. So one way to think about it, I think, is that as ecosystems become more complex and diverse, you also have an expansion of the habitable area of the Earth. So this brings me to a sort of pet peeve of mine, which is the idea of habitability, because I don't think, I don't think it's very useful to talk about habitability, because the question is habitable by what? Mm. And I think when you look at the history of the Earth, you can see that actually the question of habitable by what has itself been changing and evolving as these ecological and geological things have been going along together. And so I think w when, you, when you look at the evolution of, of animals, for example, you can see that this expands the habitable portion of the Earth in several different ways. First, each animal surface becomes an opportunity for much smaller organisms. Okay, so the adjacent possible. It's a great thing to bring up here because, you know, uh, when I think about this, again, in terms of the idea whose time has come, it gets to in design terms, the affordances of the built environment. And one of the things I love about your articulation here, your, your synthesis, is that it sort of democratizes the this, this so-called Anthropocene, you know, makes it a process that has been continuous with this greater process of niche construction that's been going on for 4 billion years, that the elephant in the room is, is Lovelock and Gaia, right? And this notion that life creates the conditions for life. There's something really beautiful about showing that there are ways that human beings are distinct. You know, you talked about this last night, you know, that our, our capacity to reflect on these things is an important qualitative difference. But at the same time, looking at the Great Oxidation event, for example, as an atmospheric or climate catastrophe that required an innovative response, the pioneering of new metabolisms on this planet casts our current climate crisis as a consequence of the industrial revolution in a light that seems to give us some very helpful and concrete analogies for how to create our way out of this accelerating sequence of catastrophes that started way before we started interfering with natural systems in any kind of intentional way. I think so, although the big difference between something like the Great Oxidation event and today is, first of all, that it was a very long time in the making. It was 300 million years in the making. And second, so and we are operating very, very much faster. And I think that I think that, that is something very important to bear in mind because, yes, we can reflect on it and possibly use it as a way to think about how to move forward, but we shouldn't spend 300 million years thinking about it. <laughs> we, yeah. we should really be thinking about it right now and in some detail and vigor. Mm. Because I, I think that one of the biggest differences between what's happening today and what's happening in the past is the speed at which it's happening and the number of dimensions on which it's happening. 
and I think that I think that that makes the current situation much more dangerous. Also, the, another big difference is that at the time of the Great Oxidation Event, Earth had was only home to bacteria and archaea, which exist as very small life forms in very large numbers, and that gives them a resilience that we do not have. You can imagine, you know, just the glaciations of the recent periods. You can see that that is more difficult for larger organisms to deal with than it is for smaller organisms. I think, and I think that you know, if we cause a major climate catastrophe, well, it may not be a problem for the bacteria, but it may well be a big problem for us. <laughs> yeah, important considerations. It seems like it's important for us to backtrack just a little bit here and put this all in context because your fifth and most recent energy innovation is fire. You know, I've always thought of fire as something that has always been around. You know, it's one of the four elements. You know, that's such a a common way of thinking. But you know, something really beautiful in what you've done is give us a stepwise, layered walkthrough of how everything that we take for granted now was pioneered at some point in history was new. You know, that like all classical music was once contemporary. So I'd love to hear more about what you've articulated as the three conditions for fire and why it's important for us to understand how rare and special fire on the surface of a planet actually is. So fire has only been here for about the last tenth of the planet's history. And that's because to have a fire, you have to have all three conditions met. And first, you have to have a way to start one, and that's actually fairly easy. You need lightning or stones falling. And and actually, a lot of the other planets in the solar system have lightning, but they don't have the other two conditions. And those are, you have to have enough oxygen to support one, uh, and you also have to have something to burn. And enough oxygen to support one is about 16% of the present atmospheric level, and that's actually not reached until almost around the same time that you start having plants on land. Those two things happen more or less together, as far as we can tell, because the oxygen may have risen a bit earlier, but it's it's very uncertain, the history of atmospheric oxygen. So you get the great oxidation event, and oxygen appears in the atmosphere for the first time. But, but the history of atmospheric oxygen after that, probably it remained fairly low until, until a certain time in the fairly recent past, which means several hundred million years ago, when it begins to, to again rise. And... At the same time, around 400 million years ago, perhaps a little bit earlier, you start getting plants on land. And so then the three things come together and you start having the possibility of fire. And in fact, the fossil record shows that that possibility was immediately met and that as soon as you could have fires, you, you did have fires. And we know this because fire leaves its own fossil trace, it leaves charcoal. And charcoal can tell you a lot about the heat of the fire. It can tell you also about the nature of the ecosystem in which the fire burned. In fact, some of our earliest fossils of flowering plants, which are strangely late to the scene, actually, in terms of evolutionary history, but in, in some of the earliest fossils of flowering plants are in charcoal, preserved in charcoal. So fire has, has been around for just the last tenth of the planet's history, but it only becomes available as an energy source for organisms once an organism evolves to use it, and that happens sometime around a million years ago, 400,000 years ago, when humans began to cook. And this is work done by uh, Richard Wrangham and others that has shown that, that when you cook food, uh, you are able to, it's a, it's a sort of pre-digestion, and you can get more calories from the same food than you would if you ate it raw. And so this has 
had a huge influence on, for example, if you cook starches, it breaks down the crystals of starch and makes them bioavailable, basically. And so, you know, if you're, if you're eating lots of root vegetables, often cooking them makes them a lot more palatable and, and makes a lot more of the materials available to you. And a number of people have argued that this is one of the reasons that humans have been able to afford larger brains. And it's also one of the, one of the consequences of eating cooked food. But Richard Wrangham argues that actually one of the consequences is that we have entirely adapted to cooked food. He calls this carcinogores. <laughs> <laughs> and as evidence for this says that people who are eating an entirely raw food diet find it very difficult to maintain their body weight and also spend enormous amounts of time in food preparation, continually sort of pounding and grinding and, and blending. Um, but also, evolving to eat cooked food, it had evolutionary consequences on human physiology, but it also means that we don't have to spend all day eating, which is what a lot of great apes do. And some people have calculated that if great apes were to have a brain as expensive as the human brain in terms of its energy demands, they would not be able to do anything except eat all day long if they did not have access to cooked food. And so, and so it's with the ability to use fire for cooking that you start to get another uh, shift in the history of the Earth, I think. And because this very rapidly starts to lead to human social changes, which also then uh, go along with tool use that is based on fire. And I think, well, I, I would argue that almost all modern human technology has its origins in the technology of fire, in particular, the ability, for example, to smelt iron, which requires a, a great deal of heat. And, and if you don't have access to that in a controlled way, you simply, you just can't get beyond the Stone Age, basically. So in terms of getting beyond the Stone Age, you know, one of the elegant threads tying all of these different disciplines together is in your discussion of how life has, like most of the mineral species on this planet now basically only exist because they've been produced in some way by some living process. And I remember hearing recently that if you take a broader view of diversity beyond biodiversity and look at the diversity of mineral species, that due to material science and industrial manufacture and so on, that we're going through what could be argued as, even as we're thinking of this as a sixth mass extinction, we're proliferating new chemicals and new compounds and new materials and new technologies. And so how do you understand that sort of complex relationship between the growth in biomass, the volatility of biodiversity, the ways in which these processes seem to lead to this exponentiation of available parts? Well, I think that one of the things that I think could be said as a general thing that with each of these energy expansions, you, you get an increase in the variety of materials and, and in particular the variety of elements that organisms are using. So when eukaryotes appear, they start to use zinc, which has, is used a bit by bacteria in archaea, but becomes, first of all, becomes much more available once you have oxygen. But second of all, you, you actually evolve new ways to use it. And, and I think that the same when you have the evolution of animals, you start to also have the evolution of shells, not only on animals, but also on, on small organisms that want to protect themselves from animals. Uh, and that results ultimately in a big drawdown of the available silica in the ocean because it's tied up in, in animal materials or protist materials. And so you do get this sort of expansion of the, of the elements that organisms are drawing on. And I think that 
one of the things that's happened with the human industrial metabolism, so to speak, is that you have an increasing reach for different kinds of elements. I mean, suddenly we, we all want rare earth elements for various industrial uses. And so it's certainly in keeping with this general pattern. I think, though, that there are deep reasons to mourn the loss of biodiversity. And I personally find it somewhat strange that we do not appreciate the wonder and beauty of some of the organisms around us more, and that we do not value that intrinsically more, because we are surrounded by remarkable organisms that have lived and evolved for millions of years. And I find this at least as beautiful and impressive as any human structure, often rather more so, actually. And so I think that for me personally, I would like us to find a way to be less impactful, not just for um, biodiversity for biodiversity's sake, but something a bit deeper than that, something a bit more almost, almost spiritual, I suppose. On some level, I have a sort of fantasy of an institute for planetary care that would try to improve the lives of humans, but also of non-humans, that would, that would be more attentive to, for example, the extent to which our noises impact other organisms and make life unpleasant for them. And, and maybe this sounds a bit sort of hokey, but I think there's something deeper there. And I wouldn't like to say it so crudely as to suggest that it's a matter of self-preservation to preserve these other organisms as well. But I, I do think that it will speak very badly of us if we allow them to go, that we just didn't care. And we were too caught up in our own stuff and too unreflective because I think it's one of those things that when it's gone, it will be extremely difficult to get it back. This is really getting off the track a bit, but I personally think that the idea that, oh yes, well, we're going to bring back the woolly mammoth by impregnating elephants. I mean, you know, really? <laughs> so um, I don't think this sounds hokey at all. I think Nora Bateson talks about warm data, keeping things in context where they can be lived and understood firsthand. And I think E.O. Wilson has argued for biophilia as not merely just diversity for diversity's sake, but understanding why we value the beautiful within our own evolutionary context. So I think there is something really important in terms of situating this entire conversation around the cultivation and or regeneration of biodiversity as part of this greater synthesis that you've articulated here, that as the network collapses, all of the niches collapse and you get cascading extinctions, you get secondary extinctions, extinctions of organisms we may not even realize that we depend upon. But there's a sort of disturbing note in all of this, which in order to get to, I have to bring up this other thing, which is that when I hear this story told, it reminds me of research like that uh, being done by John Pepper at the National Cancer Institute on the metabolic theory of cancer and how much like Andreas Wagner has done research on these cryptic mutations that suddenly find a context and suddenly you know, create a bridge between local optima and this fitness landscape, it appears as though the tissues of our body are riddled with precancerous mutations that are not actually driving the growth of a tumor and that it's pre-digesting, if you will, the tissue for this oversupply of energy 
from whatever it might be, you know, a, a metabolic dysregulation of some kind to provide the substrate, the opportunity for the tumor. And so for the last few weeks, since I saw John Pepper speak here, I've been horrified thinking about our great achievement as human beings, the discovery of fire as an instrument of technology, and realizing that the Industrial Revolution doesn't seem like it's just some sort of mistake, you know, even though it is contingent on all of these other path-dependent settings, it also seems, like you said, like as, as soon as it could happen, it did. And it's hard for me not to get out of the headspace in which human civilization is essentially functioning within the biosphere as a kind of tumorous growth. Towards the end of your paper, you talk about how the entire Phanerozoic has been characterized by the repeated replacement of low-energy life forms by those able to harness larger amounts of energy. Ectotherms are replaced by endotherms, not entirely. Gymnosperms are replaced by angiosperms, again, not entirely. But you know, when I think about this in terms of the work that Jeffrey West has done on scaling laws in cities and these accelerating returns that we observe in the economy, it seems as though whatever we're in the midst of is a process that is greater than our ability to intervene, and that human beings are maybe the gymnosperms or the, the ectotherms here, that we are participating in, in the production of massive server farms and other kinds of industrial infrastructure that are making human environments more and more inhospitable for human beings. So I'm curious where you see the sort of the map of the problem here. Well, I think it's very profound. And the work that I've been doing, thinking about Earth history and thinking about how organisms use energy, has certainly changed how I see the world. And what I'm about to say is probably going to sound very strange. But I have begun to think of organisms as being servants of energy and that we build things because we have the energy to do it. And I think this is true of all organisms. And one of the things that I've been very interested by is what happens to cyanobacteria when they are nutrient limited. So cyanobacteria uh, are the original organisms that evolved to split water with sunlight to produce oxygen. They're extremely abundant. They're probably the world's most important organism, uh, one of the most prolific, one of the most successful in terms of representation in the biosphere, because you could think about all plants as being a manifestation of cyanobacteria, because the, the, chlor the chloroplast, which allows plants to use sunlight, is derived from cyanobacteria. So when a cyanobacterium is unable to make proteins because it ha doesn't have enough access to nitrogen or to phosphorus, it must nevertheless continue to use the energy it has or else it will break down. And so what it then starts doing is it starts making sugar, but it doesn't use the sugar for itself. It just puts it into the environment. It, get, it makes the sugar and gets rid of it. It makes the sugar and gets rid of it. It makes the sugar and gets rid of it. And so you can see this situation where the energy is flowing through the organism and the organism is building stuff that is of no use to itself. Um, this has consequences for the environment because lots of other organisms then live on this sugar. And so, and so the cyanobacteria end up creating a community around them of organisms that feed on the sugar. But it has made me think a lot, and I've started reading some 
strange and difficult literature in bacteriology, which suggests that actually a lot of organisms have a sort of steam valve that in order to, that they basically let off excess energy uh, by doing one activity or another. And I have come to think of organisms as being energetic constructions. I mean, we're always breathing. We always have to carry out energetic processes. These are going on all the time. And the energy is first. I mean, people usually say, oh, yes, well, you know, organisms need energy in order to grow, reproduce, move, um, et cetera. But I think it's the other way around. I think we do those things because the energy is flowing. And what humans have been doing is creating much bigger flows of energy. And what we, do we do with those flows of energy? We build stuff. And in fact, energy use has been increasing tremendously. And as you say, some of it, especially something like Bitcoin mining, seems to me to be really just kind of putting the sugar into the system and keeping, you know, the energy. <laughs> there. And, and it makes me very pessimistic because it makes me think that we're on a kind of path where even if we were to switch completely to solar, we would still be needing to use all this energy that we have and that that use would still be destructive to the rest of the environment. And I... I think that my only sort of hope in this is that it is possible for us to understand it if we were to apply ourselves to it properly and to really pull together. I mean, a, a rowing boat goes much faster when all eight people are rowing at the same speed, you know, and, and then it really zooms along. Less and, waste heat, yes. Yeah, and if, so if we were all to pull together, it's possible that we might be able to really find something new and find a way to escape from being servants of energy. I think it's quite urgent. I'm not sure we'll make it. I think that we may be about to discover the answer to the Fermi paradox, which is where are all the other civilizations. I think we may be about to discover the answer to that, which is that you just can't get out of this energy trap. But I would like to hope that we would live up to the name that Carl Linnaeus gave us when he described us as a biological species, homo sapiens, rather than homo stupidans. <laughs> And that we would be able to, to really come together. But I think it will take quite an extraordinary cooperative effort. But cooperation is something that humans have evolved to do. Yeah, you know. Did, did that sound very strange? No, not at all. You know, the, the figure ground reversal in this, the noun or verb, object or process, this is a very important distinction when we're talking about whether it's appropriate to use continuous or discrete math, when we're talking about the difference in perception between the cultural East and the cultural West and how they parse a landscape, how they understand the relationship of organism to environment. The whole conversation around dissipative structures and, and free energy minimization has been ongoing within the sciences, at least for decades. But framing this as order emerges as a way of energy-seeking rest it circumvents this like tiresome conversation that won't die around whether life is somehow a fifth law, you know, or that life requires some sort of vitalist principle or anti-entropic principle. And it also brings us back to your mention of the importance of acknowledging grief in this, because as a process, it's almost a, a Heraclitian thing, right? That that what exists to put it in philosophical terms, right? The ontologically prior is the flow. And then the forms emerge out of the flow. And so the question of how seeing things in this way situates us with respect to these environmental and social issues, what do we do with extinction? How do we understand our role in the seemingly imminent 
biotechnological explosion that's about to happen of, of new kinds of organisms. But I want to go a little deeper with you while we still have the time for it about what comes next. Because in a way, it's important over geological timescale to compress like every energy innovation that humans have made into fire, right? And that would include presumably nuclear technologies and so on. It seems that though there's a decent reason, I'm afraid to even bring this up, but let's suggest just as a thought experiment that radically new and liberating forms of energy technology have in fact been suppressed. Is it possible that it's actually to our benefit and that if suddenly we were able to realize the ecological dream of like abundant free energy, we would turn the whole planet into paper clips or something similarly stupid? I think that there are several different dimensions to the question. I, I think that burning fossil fuel has very clear, very detrimental effects. I don't think most people would dispute that. Certainly, I don't think scientists would. And I think that, so there's an argument for saying, well, we must stop using fossil fuel as soon as we can, because it's, it is so directly disruptive and so quickly disruptive, and we are seeing those effects. But it's certainly not the only effect, right? I mean, there's a, there's a paper that was published either last year or this year, by a couple of people looking at just the general heating up as a result of entropy-causing activities. So just the use of energy and the fact that the conversion is never complete means that heat is always released in, in anything. And you can see it with microbes, too, that they're generating heat. That's why compost piles are warm. You can put your hand in, it's nice and warm, and snakes like to sleep there because of all the microbial heat production. And there are people who have predicted that by 2260, the Earth will have heated up due to energetic uses independently from the carbon dioxide, but it will have heated up and become a bit uncomfortable simply because of the, the heat that is being generated and that hangs around. I'm not able to really assess this, and I'm particularly not able to assess the 2260 figure. It's very specific. <laughs> um, but I think that there are very important questions around whether or not we would be able to decide as a civilization to say we want to go to a completely different path. It's pretty obvious that all this stuff doesn't make people happy. And so I think there's a question of, could we just do something completely different? And I don't know what that would be, and I don't think there's been enough imagining around it. There's a lot of dystopia around climate change. I don't think there's been enough imagining what alternatives are there? Is there really, could, could we step away from this process that we're part of because we can reflect on it and think about it and choose to do something that is radically different? And I really don't know the answer to that, but I would like to think that it's at least possible that we could start to try. I mean, there are other difficult problems as well in the Earth system at the moment, which have been written about lucidly by Tim Lenton and his colleagues about the need to close the material cycles that we are, we are taking materials out of the earth and using them, but we're very poor at keeping them in the system once they've been used. And so we have all this big recycling problem, especially of some of the metals and so on and so forth. And even something like phosphorus or, or nitrogen fertilizer. I mean, nitrogen fertilizer, which at least half of us today are thought to be existentially dependent on. In other words, if we were to take it away, <laughs> half of us would die immediately because we would not be able to produce crops. And yet our efficiency of using this stuff is very, very poor. So if we were able to develop ways to, to use things much more efficiently so that a much higher percentage of the fertilizer applied went to the plant instead of just running off and creating havoc in other ecosystems, 
we would start to be making a much more efficient usage and at least some of the knock-on effects of what we're doing would be somewhat reduced. And I think that those are also very important questions to, to consider. But I personally, I, I would not welcome a, an enormous unlimited energy source because I, I think it, it actually it would, it would spell D-O-O-M. <laughs> to your point about the cyanobacterial production of sugar, there's a clear economic through line there in terms of uh, the creation of positive externalities. And I'm also thinking about when, you know, there was a golden period of cathedral building in Europe, 13th century or so, that was due to the local production of wealth. There might be ways for us to make use of abundance without us allocating it toward mindless expansion? I think they're very deep questions. And I think that also there's evolution has shaped our brains in certain ways. And I think that that gives us blind spots, just as moths flock to a candle. I think that we too have blind spots and it's very difficult for us to identify them because it's us and there's nobody watching us. You know, if a dog could speak, maybe they'd be able to say, hey, hey, you, you guys really don't notice the obvious <laughs> stuff here. But I, so I think that we have blind spots. I also think that we have tendencies. Certainly, the history of humans is very complex and mixed in terms of mixture of co cooperation on the one hand, very violent aggression on the other, um, also towards other organisms. The kind of slaughter of the passenger pigeon just for kind of sport's sake, I think, suggests a, a lack of empathy and attention to other organisms. So the question is, can we, can we overcome some of our built-in biases and tendencies to try to step away from this drive for, I want more, 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 more. So it was like, as soon as it became possible, it happened, right? So do you think that maybe the answer to the question is an economic answer in terms of the, in, the way that our incentive landscapes are shaped by economic opportunity? Well, I think that it would be great for economists to take part in this conversation. Uh, and and I think that it's clear that left to itself, a free market does not deal properly with pricing of things like pollution. If we were properly paying for things like airplanes, most of us would be on the ground because the costs of the pollution are not being factored into the ticket prices. And I think that those that's true with many other aspects of our activity. And so the question is, could we rearrange the economic pricing so that our, our incentives are differently aligned. A couple of years ago, there was a, a TED Talk with Vint Cerf and, and Peter Gabriel and a few others on the interspecies internet, which is both one really exciting for the possibility of being able to, like you were talking about earlier, understand the perspectives of other creatures. But it also suggests an attempt on the part of the economy to reach into and appropriate that which has been unmeasured and bring it into the fold and, and turn dolphins and elephants into customers, you know, not just voters. And, uh, and yet, the whole issue of the need of collective computation, again, looking back through a glass darkly at the origins of endosymbiosis, wondering to what extent we can analogize that to really dense, highly connected intentional interspecies relationships now 
or whether human beings are like the mitochondria within the internet, this kind of stuff. We're back in this sort of catch-22, where it seems like the way out of the problem that we've found is to reach into other perspectives, to reach for new opportunities, to the best of the ability that we have been afforded by our energy resources, by our material resources. And I don't know, I'm just left with this very dark, bright kind of paradoxical thing, which is that, again, like economists, please join this conversation. To truly account for the full cost of human activity means to take our quantification, to take our accounting of these cycles and processes and extend it as far as we can to ask questions like, what is the economic value of one tree in the Amazon? To understand that in terms of both its material and energetic flows. And yet, in so doing, we've just sort of further enclosed ourselves in in this runaway chain reaction. So there's a vogue in ecology to talk about ecosystem services to sort of say, well, you know, bees pollinate crops and mangrove swamps protect against earth, uh, against hurricanes and, and so on and so forth. And I understand entirely where the motivation comes from to, to do this, but it also leads to people saying, okay, well, let's just make little robots that are going to pollinate the crops instead. <laughs> Which pisses me off, I have to say. And I also think that As I said, while I understand why people are trying to give an economic value to nature and sort of say, well, we're getting all this stuff for free and we should think about what it, you know, the contribution we're actually getting and the clean water and so on, I I also think that there is an intrinsic value which is different from trying to put a price on everything, and that you know, just in terms of just in terms of the soothing of the human spirit, so to speak. uh, Looking out at a beautiful landscape, that you know, there's certainly some data that suggests that if you're surrounded by nature or visions of nature when you're in a hospital bed you're able to recover better uh, and faster and that gardening you know you inhale bacteria that make you feel good and and that you know if you if you go out and work in horticultural related or outdoorsy uh, processes volunteers who do that sort of work are much less likely to be depressed than volunteers who do other kind of volunteering work so i think it's important to to think about the psychic effect of some of these losses and that is different from the economic effect, I think. And personally, I would not like a value put on every ant or every bee or every lizard. I would prefer that we arrive at a, a, at a system of coexistence, even within this difficulty that we have, that we are apparently driven to dissipate energy. So that is a, the question, right? Which is, how do we accept our role as servants of energy, yet give an intrinsic value to the myriad ephemeral forms that it produces. Well, I'm not sure we should accept our role as servants of energy. I think we should try to escape. What would it look like to throw our shoe into this machine to reject our our role in this process? It would mean arriving at a very different kind of economic psychic. I'm not sure that that would be a mistake because I really don't think that, I mean, it's very clear that material comfort makes a difference from abject poverty to basic material comfort. That makes a very big difference in terms of welfare and and health and opportunity and and, and happiness. But it's not clear, you know, I, I know plenty of very wealthy people who are not happy. So, you know, they're very comfortably unhappy. 
but they're still not happy. And, and, and so it seems like there's something, the economic situation that we've generated doesn't actually seem necessarily in keeping with a lot of aspects of what humans actually like. What do you think? I mean, have I, have I been saying very strange and weird things? Not to me, but I'm a kind of a strange, weird person. Mm. I frankly don't know how they decided to trust me to host this show. <laughs> <laughs> I want to bring this back to one of the more important points in this piece, because I think it's easy to get lost in arguing about some of these more philosophical dimensions of valuing diversity and so on. But, you know, you ended your talk and, and you end this, this piece with a sobering reminder that your synthesis is a story of how something can't happen until the conditions are ready for it to happen. And so on a planet we might otherwise consider Earth-like if the rocks absorb oxygen more than Earth's did that it may never actually make it onto the next plateau. It may never actually develop the kind of rich land-based ecosystems that we have here that seem a sort of necessary precursor to the next thing. And one, we clearly need to reframe how we're thinking about our search for Earth-like worlds. And that, that that is really about adding the time dimension and the dynamical systems dimension to this and understanding that for most of Earth's history, it wasn't habitable to human beings. Uh, you got a great line in your talk last night about how you would be constantly jet lagged if you took a time machine back 4 billion years because the planet was spinning at a different speed. And so I'd like to hear you elaborate on that in terms of recognizing the precious uniqueness of the system that we have. All other things, all other sort of abstract questions about where we are in this process and our responsibility to it aside, what do you see as the simplest takeaway from viewing life history in this way? I, I think I've learned two things. The first is that the earth is not static. And so what the world that we experience is, is, is a really a life earth co-production. It has been evolved over very long periods, everything from the variety of minerals to the oxygen that we breathe in the air and, and, and so on. And, and so I think that that is that it, 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 it wasn't just sitting here until humans appeared. It, it is we emerged out of a very long ongoing process um, and and we find the planet beautiful and, and very comfortable because we emerged at a particular time and we fit with the environment because of that process. So that's that's one thing. But the other is, you know, I, I would be amazed and delighted if we discovered that, for example, Mars has some sort of microbial life living deep within it. It would be so exciting because we could ask fundamental questions about the nature of life and the origin of life and and perhaps understand thing, more things about how life emerged here and, and so on and so forth. Or if we discovered microbes in the oceans of Saturn's moon Enceladus, it would be tremendously exciting. But we don't have to go there to know that even if there is life there, what happened here is fundamentally different. And that this landscape of, or this, this process of evolution and energy and evolution and energy that has resulted in the world we experience, that hasn't happened in those places, even if there is something alive. And so it is my belief that if you want to talk about Earth-like planets in terms of a wet, rocky world not too far from a star, it looks like there are probably uncountable millions. 
But if you want to talk about an Earth-like planet in terms of comfortable for humans, it's possible that there is only one, and we're already here. Hopefully we're here for a while. <laughs> Hopefully we're here long enough to uh, read your book. When is that coming out? When I finish it. When it's sometime next year, maybe, hopefully. I don't know if I can raise another 300 million years, but we'll see. Okay. <laughs> Very patient publisher. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> it happened as soon as it could. That's right. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Complexity is produced by the Santa Fe Institute, a nonprofit hub for complex system science located in the high desert of New Mexico. For more information, including transcripts, research links, and educational resources, or to support our science and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu slash podcast.